Pastor often asks me, or sometimes asks me if I can fill in, but every time, at least recently, he's asked me to help with the service, I've been unable. So I'm actually really pleased to not only be able to teach Bible class here again, but also to lead the Sunday service worship services. I was telling the vicar that, uh, uh, and I get, pre- I get lots of opportunities to preach here and there, but it had been six years, I think, since I'd done the service. And I did the whole liturgy, the communion liturgy, so I felt a little rusty. And, I, and I, I told the vicar, I said, look, if I say something, I'm standing in the wrong place, facing the wrong direction, you have to kind of grab me. And, but uh, I don't think there was any major problems. Now, I, uh, so, yes, I teach at Concordia. I, I get to teach summer school. I, my normal semester is from mid-August to early May. But then from May through June, I usually teach a bioethics course for the nurses. And occasionally in the summer, I get to teach a worship course uh, for some of our students. Concordia Irvine has, which you might not even be aware of, a program that is uh, run, I mean, it's it's St. Seminary and St. Louis's program. Concordia Seminary and St. Louis has a a program here that is done here at Irvine, Concordia, for the purpose of training pastors. It's a very rigorous program. It's, it's not any kind of a shortcut by any means. It's actually a really excellent program. But our students are mostly non-residential. They are all over the place. And a lot of courses are delivered online. But in the summer, they and their families come to Irvine and spend several weeks uh, doing intensive courses. And so the intensive course that I'm teaching is the course on corporate worship. I'm teaching the worship course for these seminarians, and uh, I, I required them to come to church here today. <laughs> and they're there. They're there. Please just wave your hands. And Those are my guys. Those are my students. So, um, and, and they're there with their uh, families, or some of them will be here as well uh, during second service. So please greet them. Make them feel welcome. Give them a good... Faith Capo, hurrah. <laughs> I, and those of you who do know me are aware of what I mostly teach at Concordia. I teach several theology courses. I teach the freshman intro to theology course. I teach our church, one of our church history courses. I teach the worship course. Uh, and here are there are a few other kind of odds and ends. But um, really, m- my bread and butter is to teach medical ethics or bio, biology, bioethics. And I have several versions of this class. I teach it for the nurses, our nursing school. I teach it for our Masters of Public Health program, but it's a little differently designed for that program. And I also teach a version of it for our church work students. Uh, they don't need to know exactly the same things the nurses do. So, um, so I speak about this, or I think about this a lot, bioethics. And I write the occasional article or get the opportunities to speak here or there. This is something uh, that I've been working on. And... Um, I, I mean, this kind of a fancy title. I should have found a little more friendly title. Theological Anthropology and the Apostles' Creed, a Framework for Bioethics. Did you get all that? I'm going to test you later to see if you remembered that. Um, so theological anthropology is a term. Actually, our pastor, Pastor Rody, uh, does that a lot. And I love it that he does that. He does theological anth- in his sermons and teaching. He's very keen to this. And, um, but he, I don't know if you know the term. Anthropology by itself, the word anthropology just means the study of mankind. And there's different kinds of that. There's what's called physical anthropology where you study fossils, right, and uh, remains. And then there's cultural anthropology where you go and live in the Amazon and watch different tribes and learn all the differences. 
Theological anthropology is about studying what the scriptures say and what the reflections through church history have said about what it means to be human, right? Now that seems like something that doesn't need to be taught, but it really does. Uh, what is a human being? What does it mean to live as a human being? How do we treat other human beings? And, uh, and again, this is a lot more than is what is obvious. I wish it didn't need to be taught. I wish these things were self-evident and that people had this straight, but um, generally they don't, Um, at least in the culture. Within the church, you grow up in the church, you hear preaching, you study the Bible, uh, probably not a lot of surprises with what I'm going to do. But I am of the view that during church history, during the thousands of years of Christian history, there have at different periods in time been different theological needs. So, and the church responds to the needs of the day in terms of the doctrine that needs to be focused on and developed and elaborated upon. So in the 4th century, there was confusion about what the Trinity is. And uh, so we had the Council of Nicaea in 325, in Turkey, uh, year 325. That's where we get the Nicene Creed, which we speak frequently. Where did that come from? The Council of Nicaea in the year 325. Why was it written? Because there was confusion in the church about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are the persons of the Trinity? How do they relate? Is it three gods? Is it one God? How can we say we're monotheists, but we have three persons that we worship? So the church had to, the Bible teaches this, but it, it, the, the church felt like they needed to connect the dots a little bit for people. It's a very pastoral concern. And so we get the creed. So it's not just Trinity, but also who is Jesus? What is Jesus? <laughs> is, he, you know, is he human at all? Is he partly human, partly divine? So these things, again, you've been taught in doctrine courses and sermons and Bible classes and in catechism instruction and so forth uh, were, have not always been obvious to everybody. And so we've had to, over time, uh, elaborate what does the Scripture teach? Not to add to the Scripture, but how do we elaborate what the Scripture teaches on these things? Now, all that is super important still. We never graduate from needing to know about the Trinity. Who is God? Well, he's, he's triune. We never graduate from needing to know what Jesus is. Is he just a man? Is he a good man? Is he a prophet? Is he a fake? Is he only divine but no humanity? Uh, we need to always think about that and talk about that. In the 16th century, though, in church history, the question, you know, you got people like Martin Luther who show up. And Martin Luther... Uh, he didn't have to say much about the Trinity or the, the doctrine of Christ. He didn't have to say much about those things because that wasn't a question. The Catholic Church and the Reformers in the 16th century agreed on Christology, the doctrine of who Christ is, and uh, the Trinity. So they didn't debate that. In the 16th century, what needed to be clarified, according to the Reformers, was the doctrine of how can a sinful person be right with God? Where can I find a graceful God? Is it through works? Is it through some mediation of the priest performing a sacrifice of the Mass? Um, uh, is there possible any way to be uh, reconciled to God? And of course, you know the Protestant or Lutheran Reformation answer to that, which I think is the biblical answer. They didn't create a new doctrine. They just felt like they needed to clarify what the Bible said because it was widely misunderstood. There was confusion, so there needed to be new uh, confession made. And so that's why, as Lutherans, we hear a lot about the proper distinction between law and gospel. Uh, The law condemns. The gospel is about God's gracious uh, orientation towards sinners through Christ. Uh, We talk about justification through faith alone, uh, not faith plus something. 
And uh, again, this is biblical teaching, and I don't believe it was t- entirely forgotten. Uh, there would have been no Christianity if it had been entirely forgotten, but it had been clouded, some cases badly. And so people weren't, in many cases, hearing it very much. And so I think I thank God for the reformers, Martin Luther and others, right? Because they brought that clarity back to that doctrine. All right. What today? Now, all those remain important. We must never stop teaching on any of that stuff. But I believe that today, those, while again, those are also questions and confusions we, we exist uh, with, but um, I think the pressing, the most pressing or urgent doctrine of Christianity that is needed today is the doctrine of what is a human being. Theological anthropology is kind of a fancy seminary word for that. What does it mean to be human? And again, I, I think for many people, you never ask that question. It's not one of those things that you wake up and say, what am I? Right? Um, you might think of, who am I? All right? But you're not necessarily thinking, well, what am I? Right? Now, however, as I kind of elaborate this, I think you'll see where, why this is confusing and why we need, as a Christian church in the 21st century, need to be very good and very clear about teaching what it is to be a human being. Now, I say this is a framework for bioethics because confusion about what it means to be a human or distorted uh, anthropology, in other words, is at the base of many of the problems the church is facing today. It's because we don't have a clear understanding of what a human is that we don't know what a man and a woman are. Right? That's why our society, in many cases, is unclear on that, is confused about that, is rebellious on that. And so you have all sorts of uh, sexuality questions, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction. Uh, is this something that's created in us by God? Is it something that is sinful? Um, not only does the world not understand this very well, but many within Christian- in the greater umbrella of Christendom also frequently get wrong. And, and that is when they don't hold to the tradition and they look, have a low view of Scripture, perhaps. Uh, it's because of a distorted or confused anthropology that we get these sex and gender questions. You know, someone is born, they don't know, they grow up, they don't know if they're male or female. Whereas objective biology or objective reality should answer that question. And that's a whole big topic, and I've talked about that uh, transgender stuff extensively, and that's not my main topic today, but just as an illustration, that that is an example of what happens when we don't clearly teach or don't clearly understand, and of course the sinful nature uh, distorts everything, right, distorts the truth, makes it hard for us to hear the truth or believe it, Um, all the more reason why the church has to be very clear on this. And many of the what we might think of as typical or traditional bioethics controversies, namely things like abortion or euthanasia, end of life, even things like genetic engineering, um, uh, test tube babies, if you will, IVF, and those sorts of things, often people adopt beliefs about that because based on a distorted anthropology. Um, You've got to know what a thing is before you know how it should be regarded and how it should be treated. And if we're not clear what a human is, or who qualifies as a human, are there degrees of being human? Um, and, and, and you know, surprisingly, the, the culture we live in um, and around the world gives quite unbiblical answers to those questions very, very often. 
I think instinctually, sort of natural law created in us to get a lot of this right, but because of sin, we don't as a, as a species. Now, if you went back to the 16th century and asked Martin Luther, um, you know, what, what does it mean to be a human being? He's going to like, huh, you know, what? Why is this even a, what, you know, what's the question mean? Um, in fact, if you did ask someone in the 16th century, what is, uh, what is your anthropology? They would think you're talking about, well, there's sin and righteousness. All right, but, but what about more? You know, I mean, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And um, now the Lutherans have talked about that, but, uh, but I think we need more attention to these things in a particular way. Because if we get this right, and if we're, if we're obvious about taking that which is implicit and making it explicit, then I think we have the equipment to respond and uh, pastorally uh, address the needs of people who are confused or rebellious on this. And um, this is also my main point. This is what I do for uh, my main teaching emphasis. And I believe that many within the Christian church who get the answers to this right, people that have a high view of the authority of Scripture, who um, you know, know basically right from wrong, have the correct view on things like transgender, same-sex marriage, or uh, abortion and whatnot, often don't have a good way to explain why. why. And so what they'll do, if you, can't, if you don't have a good, sort of rich understanding of this, you resort to legalism. Um, it's, it's wrong because God said it. And here I can point you Bible passages. And on a certain level, that's sufficient, right? I mean, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? I mean, we can be all behind that, I think. But that only gets you so far in terms of actually communicating with people. Um, sometimes you need to elaborate. Sometimes you need to explain. And I think part of our uh, responsibility as a Christian church is not only to say the right thing, but to persuade others. And, uh, and this is not to diminish the role of the Holy Spirit. You preach the Word of God, you read the Scriptures, and it's the Holy Spirit that works through things to uh, those means to change hearts and minds, enlighten us, right? Um, but that doesn't, because that's true, that doesn't excuse us from the hard work of being able to use the Scripture as wisely as possible uh, to, to maybe, if we can, transcend merely legalistic answers. The law of God is good and right. Okay, We don't graduate from the Ten Commandments and, so, and the Sermon on the Mount. The law of God is good and right, but in a very biblically unliterate culture, in a neo-pagan society such as ours, it is, it is helpful for us to be able to just pronounce laws, but also where's the gospel in that, and what's the why, insofar as we, have a, we are able to say that. Some things you just can't explain because it's a mystery. But I think there are things we can say. Part of it also is being able to accurately diagnose the issues, uh, the problems. We, uh, we do a good job in that to some extent, but we could do better. You need to be able to, uh, we as a culture, as a church I mean, as our ministry to the world, our mission to win people for Christ, includes being able to help people see reality as it is. You know, um, we want to preach long gospel very clearly, very straightforwardly, but also to give people the ability to view the world, kind of a world view as people often use that term, how you view the world Christianly uh, from a biblical, Christ-centered, gospel-focused way. 
And I find that in, in, in bioethics, a lot of pro-life Christians, of which I am one, but a lot of pro-life Christians don't get much farther than law. Uh, you know, it, it's wrong. Okay, we're going to protest that it's wrong, it's bad. And, and, and again, like I said, uh, I agree with that. But it is also helpful if we, as a, as a church, can welcome people and, uh, um, and be discu- uncomfortable, perhaps, not to compromise the truth or to refrain from speaking the truth, but um, to, to do the hard work of trying to communicate well. Um, and so that's, that's one of my, my things that I do. Now, at Concordia, uh, the students are not required to sign a faith statement. I don't know if you knew that. All the professors have to be church-going, active Christians who know the Nicene Creed and believe it and can tell you who their pastor's name is and all that sort of thing. They can't t- if, if someone can't tell you the name of their pastor, they may say they're active, um, but how active are they if they don't know the name of their pastor? So we, we do that kind of litmus testing with profs, as we should. Uh, a majority of our profs are LCMS, but not 100%. But of our students, we don't ask if they, they need to know who we are. We are a Christian, a Lutheran university, uh, gospel-oriented, uh, Christ-centered, founded on the scriptures, as understood by the Book of Concord. That's who we are. And we have to be very upfront in all our promotional material and so forth. That, that's who we are. And if you don't believe any of that stuff as a, state, a claim of faith, you're welcome as long as you're willing to engage us on that basis. And we have a lot of students who are comfortable doing that. And it's so exciting. I love going to work. I love, I've always loved being a pastor, but I also am quite excited every day I get to go in and teach. Um, when I teach these seminary guys, uh, they're already Christians, <laughs> right? And they're already LCMS. But when I teach the average student body, typical student body, I have atheists. I have all variety of people who identify as Christian, some of them more serious about it than others. I have Muslim students quite frequently. Uh, I've had Buddhist, um, I've had an Orthodox Jewish student, Sikh. I mean, any world religion you can think of, uh, I've had as a student. And, um, and they're welcome at Concordia. Now, when I teach them bioethics, they should know what they're going to get. I'm going to teach them uh, what, what I believe and confess. However, I have to be prepared that not everybody in my classroom is going to agree with those things. And so there will be pushback, and I invite that. When I have my students come in, I'm going to talk about, I say abortion, we talk about a lot more than that, but it is sort of the boom, you know, the hot potato everybody thinks of. And when I bring, and it's also an issue that people have strongly held views on. Uh, if I talk about genetic engineering, I might be able to converse with you without somebody getting mad the first second I say something. Abortion, people often have very firm views already, and that's okay, but we do need to do a better job as Christians of talking to people that do not agree with us, okay? Um, That doesn't mean we compromise the truth. And so I have worked hard, I don't know how successfully, but I have worked hard to hone that skill so that I can, if, if if I don't do this well, by the grace of God, it will shut people down. And they won't, they won't engage what I'm saying anymore. They'll just, boom, close off. They'll get through the class. Um, and that's not ideal. That's not optimal for me as a professor. I would much rather have someone that is pro-choice and vehemently disagrees with my pro-life position. You know, maybe they're secular. They don't believe in God even. So how am I going to talk about we are created in the image of God, image and likeness of God, if they don't believe there is a God? Well, I want to have that conversation. I don't want to just say, well... <laughs> Give, throw up my hands and say, I guess we have nothing, no common ground. 
um, that doesn't that doesn't actually I think promote the mission. Okay, um, I I do sometimes see people get persuaded, but not often. Uh, I, but I do, right? And so sometimes I'll see people that are vehemently in one camp that we would say is maybe not biblical. It is not biblical. Frequently I'll see people that have those kinds of viewpoints who may come closer, right, if they don't quite adopt everything. And I count that as a partial win. I plant the seed, someone else will water it, it'll harvest later. Um, so that's just who I am and what I do. This is my rationale for this topic. Uh, I'm explaining you why I'm going to say these the, the things I'm going to say. Now, I am not going to be able to get through most, obviously, of what I have <laughs> um, in, this, in this period of time. But I just want to give you a bit of a taste of what, what I do um, as a Lutheran pastor, uh, bioethicist at Concordia Irvine, and how I hope that I can help equip the church at large. Um, I do have Christian students who agree with me on all kinds of positions who come up to me and are very appreciative that Concordia holds this standard, a pro-life standard. And, uh, and so some students aren't fond of that, but others are quite happy about it. And so it's kind of exciting to hear from them as well. Now here's another thing I want another point to make. Uh, for my nursing students, I speak of them especially because I spend the most time talking about controversial medical things with them than others. And uh, I've found that I have students, and this is something I did not expect, but doing this for eight years, and I teach it at least twice a year, sometimes three times a year, so I've gone through this a, quite a bit so far. And I find this interesting, I didn't expect, that sometimes I'll have very dedicated Christians, conservative believers, uh, who know the Bible, believe the Bible, can quote the Bible. I have them do some faith essay sort of stuff. And I've had students who can talk to you about justification by faith extremely articulately. And these are just, you know, they're, they're basically undergrads, so they don't have seminary training or so forth, but they're active Christians, and they know their stuff. And I've found students who can, they can explain the difference between uh, law and gospel. They may not even be Lutheran, but they can do that. I find that really, really exciting. But what disheartens me is when some of those students uh, get a lot of these bioethical things uh, variant. Um, you know, if someone can tell me, say they believe the Bible is inspired by God and is inerrant without error and infallible and they believe it and it guides their life, um, but they are pro-choice. And I see that as a disconnect. But they don't. They, they, don't, ha- they, don't, uh, they don't automatic. They should, but they don't automatic. That's what I'm talking about. We need to be able to discuss with people what we think is natural. Um, from that perspective. So not only do I have secularists or non-believers that need to be uh, taught some of uh, Christian insight on these things, but I have Christians who don't see any disconnect between uh, being supportive of abortion access uh, and yet being a conservative, as they would say, a biblical Christian. And they're quite sincere. I don't think they're being disingenuous about it. I think they're quite sincere. They just don't see the point. They don't see the problem. And that is partly because they have drunk from the fountain of false anthropology their whole lives. 
through media, through television, through uh, their peer group, through politics. They have, been, they have been inundated with a false or distorted anthropology, and they're not even aware of it because, perhaps, their churches take it for granted. Um, and we should be talking about things like abortion. I don't think that should be everything we talk about. Um, but, uh, but it is part of the Christian confession, especially today. If we lived in a world or a society where these things were unthinkable, we could probably be fine with you know, not acknowledging or saying much about it, but we don't. All right. So, okay, so that's some of my, uh, uh, interrupt me anytime. I, I, I'm, I'm fond of talking and hearing my own voice, um, but I'm also fond of conversation. So please, uh, raise hands, anything, at any point. I see nothing yet. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> so I'm going to project a few things. I'm not going to be heavily reliant on slides today. And I, I said, I asked that we not stream this slide presentation along with my um, speaking part because the slide show isn't done. <laughs> and, and so I'm still working. I'm going to skip, skip around on it. But let me just start here. Uh, the problem and solution. Well, the problem is stuff I've talked about. I don't know if you can read that. That's probably too small. For, yeah, that's way too small. So I'll just say it all out loud anyway. Um, the problem, as I just said, I think one of the greatest uh, doctrinal, theological confusions of our day is this. Um, because false anthropologies lead to unnatural, destructive, and anti-human practices. Uh, and uh, it, this is just a way of saying that your ethics flows from your doctrine. What you believe shapes, to a great extent... What you do, okay? And, uh, and, and so, solution, biblical anthropology, we need to know what we are in order we, that we may know how we should be regarded. For example, abortion, again, it's the easy one, easy example to use. I'm not obsessed with it, but it's easy to talk about. Abortion, it all hinges, your view on this, all hinges on how you answer this question. What is it? Right? Uh, and, and or what is its relationship to other things? So, um, if you say it is not a human yet, or it's not a person yet, or it's partially but not there fully, then you may have, you will have a very different idea of what we can do to the embryo. If it's not human, if it's merely something akin to a polyp, um, or a, you know something like that, you just remove it, or you know an earlobe or something, you cut it off, and ju- then you can experiment on it and destroy it. Right? But if you, however, believe that the embryo is a human being like us in every way, just at the nascent early stage of development, but it is yet a person with human rights from the very first moment, if you believe that, then you really should have a problem with destroying it on purpose, either through abortion or through uh, other, other research or whatever that, that destroys the embryo, or how we treat the embryo uh, determines, I mean, is based on what we think it is. I had a professor, and some of you have heard me talk on things like this before, may have heard me say some of these things. Um, I like showing this slide and telling a little anecdote about it. When I was a student studying bioethics at the grad school, um, we had a professor come in, and uh, it was a small class, maybe there's five of us, and she handed out, each of us, she gave us like four little plastic, clear plastic baggies uh, with white powder in them, and she gave us all of them, four of them, and she said, now I want you to just take a little spoon and I want you to taste each one of those things. Now, what's my question? <laughs> what is it? Because depending on what it is, it's going to depend whether I'm going to eat it or not. 
right? So if it's laundry detergent, I best not. Um, if it's vanilla pudding mix, then I'm in safe ground. Um, you know, I, I don't think my prof gave us cocaine, so that's not on the, that's not on the table. Um, so this just goes to it. This is just evidence that we can't know how to regard a thing or how to treat something until we first answered what is it. And uh, so I think that's vitally important. And this comes up very, very much in the case of human embryos and a fetus. Um, it can also reflect uh, what we think about a newborn. Or what about a severely disabled newborn? Uh, does it have human rights? Should it be euthanized? Uh, what about someone in a persistent vegetative state or a um, intransigent coma, right? doesn't appear they'll ever wake up. Uh, do they sacrifice human rights at that point? Should they be treated differently than you'd want to be treated uh, because their level of consciousness is different? Um, what about someone with severe dementia? You know, is it okay to just smother them to death or poison them because they can't understand? I mean, so uh, how, do you, how do you evaluate? Now, these are not, what I just said, those examples are not like, you know, science fiction. That's what people do. Right? And that's what we debate and discuss in bioethics. And I can tell you, in the medical fields, uh, there are plenty of advocates that say we should be euthanizing, that is, killing disabled newborns. And I think that's atrocious because I think a, a, a human being, no matter what their disability, has the same dignity and should be, I mean, I, to me, that should be unquestioned. It's unthinkable. But, but the fact that some people do think it means that I have to not just be shocked. I need to be able to talk about it. Right? Explain why I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's probably wrong. Um, it is wrong. And so, uh, so I, I recently wrote a, a paper about disabled newborns. Um, if you have a baby that's born and it looks like it's going to have a really hard road ahead of it, um, it's not going to die. It doesn't have a terminal illness, but maybe it has some, the sort of disability that looks like it's going to be a real challenge for the child and for the parents. Um, what is the right way to go? Uh, what would be the Christian thing to do? Um, you know, I, I believe that it is the right thing to do is to care, right? To care, never to kill, but to care. And, um, you know, and what, what that exactly means can depend a bit on circumstances. But, um, but to actively choose death for someone or for yourself, I think, is, is forbidden. Okay. And the reason I think that is not because it's just a commandment, which it is, but the reason I think that is because I think a human being is the most majestic creature that you'll ever witness, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis has this beautiful essay that you all must read. Take home, go home and look this up. It's not easy to read, but it's an essay by C.S. Lewis. Some of you probably know it. It's called The Weight of Glory. And I should have found the quote. I, I refer to it a lot, but I keep forgetting to find the actual quotation. But the weight of glory, he spends this essay doing in 19-whatever, 45 or something, a uh, lot that I'm trying to do. And he says that, he says in one place, he says, uh, the most holy thing that you will ever see in your life, uh, other than the Eucharist, the most holy thing you will ever see is another human being. Right? And he specifically talks about, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, scary, crazy guy that lives under the bridge in a cardboard box is the most holy thing, the most glorious and majestic thing in the world. Not because of, you know, not because of any capacity he has. He may not have very many capabilities. But be simply 
because he is a human being. And, the fa- and you know, we all implicitly have to watch ourselves in what ways might I be denying their humanity? Uh, not that I want to kill them, but do I, how, how seriously am I, uh, how serious am I about trying to think of ways and participate in ways to help out? Right? I mean, there's all kinds of homelessness, for instance, and mental illness are both very difficult and challenging things, especially when those two things go together. But, um, but you know, out of sight, out of mind, and that's not an option. That's not an option. Right? Have it in mind. Because you know why? Because it's a human being. That should be all I have to say. But, uh, but his humanity is not as obvious because he's scary, because he may be dirty, he may even be threatening, he may be talking out of his head. Um, you know, and so I think mental illnesses, certain and severe mental illnesses, I think we tend to want to put people away. And that's the, sa- that's the same thing as sort of denying, in a less harmful way, their humanity than actually killing them, right? I mean, that would be even more harmful. But we are a society that, and, and you know, I, I share this guilt. I think we as a society don't have always the best approach, even the church Christians, to people that are, you know, quite different. Now, this can manifest in things like racism, right? And it can manifest in things like um, uh, wanting to just institutionalize and put people in a compartment uh, because they're sick, all right, or differently abled and never will be the same, all right? It's out of sight, out of mind because it's more comfortable for us, not because it's in their best interest, necessarily. So I think we can all be challenged. I'm not, I'm not you know, promoting abortion, but am I respecting the dignity of those fellows around me that I can, that I do see? Right? Um, that, those are just questions, I think, that we as Christians, when we look at the mirror of God's law, we should, we should ask. The man in the mirror. You know, it, it, do I, do I, how well do I respect? And of course, this begins at home. Of course, this begins with your spouse and your children and your parents, that you treat them with the utmost of respect, no matter what, even if they're in a coma, even if they're severely, um, say, cognitively disabled or something, that we treat them with um, utmost respect. And, and that doesn't you know, always have to look exactly the same in every situation, but that, uh, that we're mindful of that and that we don't just become embarrassed or disgusted or whatever. Okay. So you've got to know what a thing is before you know how you can regard it, what your relationship to it might be, and what you can do to it. And it also uh, means what you can do to yourself. Our culture <clears throat> magnifies the importance of uh, things like consent and autonomy. Now, those things shouldn't be disregarded. But we tend to think anything is permissible as long as it is done with consent, consensual, and, um, and uh, you know, they're exercising their personal autonomy. Our culture, not every culture, but our culture in particular idolizes autonomy, personal autonomy. Do what you want, as long as you don't hurt anyone else, but then even that can be discussable and debatable. Right? Um, you know, it's kind of the harm principle that one philosopher brought up is, you know, I have the freedom to swing my arm all I want until it meets your nose. Then my freedom is restricted. Well, but maybe it isn't obvious how someone engaging in, say, um, uh, you know, sex change operation, how's that hurting others? Well, I can make an argument that it does. 
um, because it, 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 it uh, confuses, again, what gender is or what, what sexuality is or sex is. And that by your behavior makes me confront that and it may change my attitude, which will in, in turn uh, affect all of society and that will then have impact on lives. Okay? So I put to you, and I think you know this because I think biblically we have this instinct. We know that God is the one who's in rulership. He is the king of us and our bodies. Okay? So we as Christians should know that we do not have absolute freedom to do with ourselves. Certainly not with others, but we do not have the absolute freedom to do with ourselves anything that we want. And that is a countercultural message. And people will be offended when you say that. Sometimes they will be angry when you say that. And so you want to keep anger to a minimum, and you certainly want to control yourself so that you don't become angry too. Okay? Um, and like I said, I spend a lot of time when I teach bioethics to students just this kind of how to have a conversation with people that disagree with you in a way that might be fruitful and avoid ways that definitely are not fruitful. I spend a lot of time talking about that. Before I can talk about issues, we got to talk about, so how do you talk to people? And that is something I think our very divided society, American culture, it couldn't be, well, it could be, but is quite polarized not just on bioethics, but on many issues, moral issues, worldview issues, and so forth. As, and you know that, right? Our world is very sharply divided, perhaps more so than in many uh, years. Um, what we, what's, is that good? No, it's not good. Um, a civil society cannot go on like that. Ultimately, we, we trust God's uh, providence to care for the world. We can't solve the problems of the world, but we can start by looking in our mirror. Yes. Something, uh, excuse me, something I'm having a tough time with right now in this political climate, and I don't mean to get in, into politics, is at what point do we c capitulate our ethical values on, say, abortion uh, to do the greater good of electing somebody that might do, might promote values that we have in other areas? Would we capitulate? our views on abortion. If, do you understand what I mean? I do. I totally understand. I think I totally do. Um, and that's a really, really fair question, a good question that we do need to ask and answer. Um, <clears throat> so, I think we can rank problems. You know, I think some pro there's lots of problems and there's a lot of serious problems, but I think we can, to some extent, rank them in terms of their urgency and, uh, and the harm that can be caused if we don't get it right. Now, what you're talking about, as I understand, is what about if you have no good candidate to vote for? Um, and maybe you have one candidate that is ostensibly pro-life, but is going to do a lot of other really harmful things. And then you have someone else who's weak on that point, but has a lot of other really good ideas that would probably make life better for a lot of people. You know, that's hypothetical, right? You can, you can hypothetically imagine it. Someone that is technically pro-life in terms of abortion access, but is certainly not pro-life and many other issues, right? I think that's arguably true, right? That that could be the case. Um, and, and I don't pretend always to have the final word on things. Um, now, my answer to you, and I think a fairly common one in my circle, <laughs> is uh, that um, if you can't get the right to life right, then it's, it's doubtful that you're going to, in the end, 
get others, if I can't even agree who deserves to have a chance to be alive, uh, then how can I be relied upon to answer other questions sanely, right? Now, people are inconsistent. People that should be making stupid decisions often don't. Make, they make good ones because they're inconsistent or they should be making, you know, uh, by, their, uh, by, their, by what they say they believe, you'd think they'd make good decisions, but they often make bad ones. So people are inconsistent. Um, so the Catholic Church has a very good um, way to look at this. Uh, at least, well, you know, there's a billion, 1.1 billion Roman Catholics, so there's a lot of diversity of views on this, but uh, generally pro-life, right? Uh, they will generally say things like abortion is kind of that that is kind of that line in the sand that is very very difficult to justify uh, voting for candidates that will actively support greater access to um, abortion. However, the Catholic Church's view, and I, I kind of share it, is that um, we uh, and, and this may be something you disagree with, and that's I, I'm okay with that if you are. Um, I'm kind. I, I want it to be gone immediately. Everything gone now, completely. But if if that's not looking like it's going to happen, I would also favor incremental improvement. You know, if if I think someone isn't quite where they need to be, but I don't have a good choice. I don't. They're all bad choices for one reason or another. But one is better. Is going to have more sane policy than this one's going to have a worse policy on it. Um, I would not necessarily refrain from voting. You know, they're both bad on this. None of them get it right, so I'm not going to vote. Or I'm going to vote for some very obscure name. Um, I sometimes am thinking, you know, let's try to improve the situation. Let's see if we can't save every life, we can save as many as we can. I don't know if I'm quite answering your question, but I see it as a problem. I agree with you that it is sometimes a dilemma. Um, I'd love to be black and white in every single way 100% of the time, but sometimes you have to kind of think things through, you know, to some extent. When we're talking about politics, okay, I don't mean like in confession of faith, but in politics, sometimes we have to go for the art of the possible, right? I mean, it's, you know, this is the way it ought to be, but none of these candidates are going to get me there, at least not themselves. So this one's going to be better. <laughs> you know, lesser of two evils. Now, this can be accused. I could be facing the accusation of what is called utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is just that. What is going to cause the greatest good for the greatest number? And um, then there's another form of ethics. There's Basically, ethics can be broken into three pe- th- sections. I'm just going to tell you two of them. One camp of ethics is usually just follow the rules. No matter what the cost, follow the rules. Do your duty. Do the right thing. That's one way to approach ethics. Another way to approach ethics is do whatever will have the best result. Okay? And I think all of us do a little bit of both, depending. Um, the danger of being totally utilitarian, and I was, what I was just saying certainly verges on the utilitarianism. Get the art of the possible. Get the best you can. Make incremental improvements if you can't get total improvement overnight. So that might be seen as utilitarian. The ends may justify the means. But I, I, I also hesitate. To, I think there should be great limitations on having that as your main ethic. Here's a good example. Okay, And again, I am not intending to throw a bomb out for people to kind of you know, start you know, having a uh, rabble here. Okay, um, <laughs> But vaccines, that's not controversial. Anybody find that to be controversial? Mandated vaccines? Of course it is, right? 
um, is very controversial and has been in our recent, right? You know all that, COVID. Uh, vaccines, are they safe? Uh, are they effective? Should they be mandated? Should we lock down? I mean, all that kind of stuff comes under, uh, well, it's a bioethical thing as well as political and social. And um, so here's one argument, okay, for vaccines, for mandating vaccines. There's just an argument, okay. So what's the problem? The problem is how do you balance individual liberty, okay. Now that could be seen as consent or autonomy, which isn't always bad. In fact, it should be respected, but it's not all, all there is. And then the other side is what's best for the group. Is it okay to limit autonomy, your personal liberty? Is it okay sometimes to limit that for the good of the greater group? Well, we all think that, right? I mean, we all think that to some extent, right? You limit your personal autonomy all the time if you follow the speed limit because it might not just harm you, you might harm other people. And you know that, and you're okay mostly with following the speed limit, <laughs> right? So that is a way. Seatbelts, helmets uh, for kids on bikes. I mean, these are ways to limit autonomy. My freedom is limited. You know, you don't let kids buy cigarettes. Right? Uh, we, li- we have laws that limit personal autonomy in some ways that we mostly find acceptable. But you can obviously go way too far with that, and that's where the debate lies. So, um, you know, uh, all vaccines have some risk. You know, I, you know, for now, let's not talk about the source of the vaccine, right? If it's got embryo, uh, if, you know, there's some kind of embryo in its past, right? Let's not think about that at the moment. But, um, you know, administering vaccines, there are going to be some who will have an adverse effect, right? You give out smallpox vaccines to enough people, some people will die because they have a reaction to the vaccine. However, the number of people that you will save by inoculating them from smallpox is much, much greater. So to some extent, that's a utilitarian argument. It's the greater good, uh, even though we know there'll be some law. Children are going to die either way. Some are going to die of smallpox, some are going to die of the vaccine, but much fewer are going to die this way. At least that's an argument that can be made. Right? So uh, all that is for me to say that, um, that it's not easy <laughs> to answer. Um, but I tend to say that abortion is kind, probably almost always that line in the sand. That it, I just find it hard to believe that someone, when push came to shove, uh, would, would think life uh, on uh, support life, human life, in other areas, if they can't get this most basic one right. Yeah. Um, I, my question is, since you come across real nice and sweet, is what about the other people, like in the Bible, like Nehemiah, Jonah, Job, uh, John the Baptist, who confronted their people? In or a Jesus. Very, yes. yes. That guy. Well, I believe there's a time for confrontation, right? There's a time for being uh, unmoving. Uh, There's a time for that. I don't think it's just every time you have a slight disagreement or even a major disagreement. I don't necessarily think that must be. Sometimes there's no compromise. Sometimes there's no conversation, right? I get it. But uh, sometimes, though, uh, we can, you know, it's it's usually better not to go from calm to outraged in one second, okay? Uh, you know, sometimes it's better to kind of have a, a buffer zone where we're gonna, maybe we need to get to outrage, but we don't have to necessarily jump there immediately. And so I do think, whether you call that nice or whatever we call that, um, I mean, you know, Jesus could be very tender with the weak. And, and I think that matters. 
Are we talking about someone that's weak? Or are we talking about someone that's a, that's a ardent rebel? It's not always the same. Okay? Someone may be making uh, ethical choices out of weakness, um, uh, and that can include fear. Um, but uh, someone else may be uh, you know, sinning, but it's more of an active, conscious act of rebellion. Um, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. You're wrong. In fact, you're, you're dangerous. Because you believe the Bible. You're the danger. We should get rid of you. You see, that's something. That's one thing. But someone else who's really kind of maybe struggling, and they don't appear to be struggling, but, you know, I think we have to assume weakness. Often assume people are, there's room in there for us to kind of get in there. So I see Jesus as being tender with the weak, right? Um, but not as much. More bold and confrontational with, uh, with leaders who ought to know better. But, you know, his way of responding to Nicodemus, right, is different than how he responded to some other um, Pharisees, right? You brood of vipers. Well, you know what? That ends conversation. <laughs> Does it mean you should never say it? Well, you know, I mean, Jesus, John the Baptist, they said, they said things that ended conversation, okay? Now, so I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I am saying that we should try to listen Here's the other thing. We need to do more. We need to do better to make sure that what we are arguing against is what they actually mean and not what we think they are saying. And you don't think you're doing that. But I can guarantee we all at some point, some of us worse than others, fight against straw men. Uh, We fight against... Uh, they may be wrong. We may have genuine disagreement, but our disagreements may not be exactly what you think they are. And you're not going to make progress. You're not going to persuade unless you actually talk about what the point is. And I see, I, again, I teach, I teach this, like conflict resolution or how to have a debate, how to have an argument. I teach on this for, with my bioethics students. That's a big unit is how to have an argument. Um, because I think we do this all the time. We look for their weak spots. We go after that. We exaggerate what we think is their problem, even unintentionally. And that solves nothing. It makes the problem worse. And we just don't do this well. We do, as a, by we, I mean as a world, as a society, I think often as Christians. Um, we, are, we are righteous in our anger. Um, but, uh, and that's, that's, that's right. But uh, also, we got to make sure that we know what we're angry about. And so what I do is I actually require students in my bioethics courses to write something, an essay from, on an issue. They can pick the issue. But on an issue with, with which you disagree. So I, if you believe a certain thing, I want you to write an essay from the other perspective. But to do it so accurately that someone who held that perspective would say, yeah, that's what I think. Now, um, I think that's valuable. If I hear all the time people complaining against Christians, it's like, well, that's not exactly what I'm saying. You know, you get it wrong. <laughs> if that's what Christians said, I'd be against that too. But that's not what I'm saying, right? You know, you hate this and that. Well, you know, I mean, come on, uh, let's, let's back up. You know, you want old people to die. That's why you, you don't want to have access. You want old people to die. Well, no, I don't want old people to die. I may have questions about the lockdown, but, you know, there may be some other answer. It's not just either do a total lockdown or you want people to die. No, maybe I don't want the lockdown, but it doesn't mean I want people to die. But you see what I'm saying? We polarize things. We like to just jump to the most extreme 
version of what they're saying, and it's usually distorted. And we often don't know we're doing it. So that requires work on our part to make sure when we're talking to somebody that we're actually responding to what they really are saying. Not what we, you know, we filter everything. And, you know, if you're looking at everything through uh, tinted lenses, everything's going to look tinted. And we need to do best, do our be- and you can't avoid it, but to do our best to try and have clear lenses. And, uh, and then you can more clearly put your point forward. You can confess the truth better if you're confessing it to their question, not to the question you think they should have. Right? So, uh, so nice, I think, is, gives you a lot of traction. Um, but there are times to be uh, confrontational and bold. Um, I think you can be nicely bold also. Okay, yeah. so you wouldn't go with Nehemiah. Well, I mean, if I'm a prophet inspired by God, that's a little different. My problem is, most of the time, and I'm trying to overcome it, is to be too nice. Well. <laughs> and, and, and I have to say, just as a, and I, I greatly appreciate what you're saying today. Very, very much. But I just have to add this little footnote. Please. Christ wasn't all that easy on Nicodemus. I mean, he said, <laughs> out, he said you're a teacher of and Israel and so forth and all that. So he was confrontational to a certain extent also, and he still came to faith. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree. I, in fact, as I was saying that, I was thinking that. I, I was like, oh, I should qualify this a little because I'm saying something. I, but he did do that. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he's showing surprise, but he's not, I don't, I don't think he said something like, you're a snake, <laughs> 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 or you're dead, right? You're, you're a whitewashed sepulcher, you're dead inside, you look good, but you're dead inside. I'm not sure he said that to Nicodemus, as far as we know. It, yes, he did correct him, it wasn't too nice, it wasn't nice in the sense of wallpapering over things that should be talked about. That's not good either. I mean, we don't want to sweep things under the rug, you know, that are uncomfortable. But we also don't need to make a federal case out of every single piece of dust, right? I mean, uh, Jesus has wisdom we don't have, so he never did anything wrong. Um, and, and we should be like Jesus. But, uh, and pray for wisdom, right? We need the Holy Spirit and all these things. Right. We, but in addition to the Holy Spirit, or how does the, not in addition to, but how does the Holy Spirit work? Through means, through the Word. And so we need to, we can't just ex- expect that we will just confront things in the world, uh, and maybe even members in our family that have quite varying views that we consider wrong um, and problematic. We can't just think that God will just give me words. Yeah, there's miracles, right? But God also works through the scripture that you have embedded through study and reading. I mean, when Jesus confronted the devil for the 40 days of Lent or what, you know, after his baptism before the 40 days, he quoted scripture to the devil. So he knew it, right? And if we can do that, if we have that in our minds, um, that will help us have the right words, at least a little bit. But we also have to, like I said, um, Jesus understood. He was not surprised by Nicodemus, right? He may have sounded like, hey, what? <laughs> what are you saying? Um, he wasn't surprised. He knew that was coming, right? And he knew. Uh, and so if we can do that too, if we can anticipate objections, if we can anticipate questions, um, and because it's, it's arguing from a point of weakness, when you're arguing from surprise, you know, you're more likely to, you know, because nobody likes to be like, um, you know, gotcha, right? If, but if you can anticipate it because you've done some study 
and you have some experience. No, you're not always going to get this right. We're all going to make mistakes. We all need to be under the cross. Uh, but no, you are correct. I actually was thinking I should, I should qualify what I'm saying because I don't want to give the wrong impression about how Jesus was there. Are we done? Okay, yes, you're done. Totally done. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>